0: Texting privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting and roles for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply to opt
1: out.
2: and on Skype, Exxon Radio TV. For more information on the Exxon Radio TV show with yours truly, Rob McConnell, visit www.exxonradiotv.com or www.exonTVchannel.com, or simultv.com and xzbn.net. Welcome to the Connecting with Coincidence radio show with Dr. Bernie Beitman, M.D., bringing together the world's synchronicity experts to help you use meaningful coincidences to develop spiritually, psychologically, and practically. For more information, put Connecting with Coincidence into your web browser to find the book, website, Psychology Today blog, YouTube channel, and Facebook page. And now, here is the host of the Connecting with Coincidence radio show, Dr. Bernie Beitman, M.D.
4: Yes, yes. Welcome, welcome to CC with BB, connecting with coincidence. I am your host, Dr. Bernie Biteman, MD. Let's talk about your data double. Your data double is currently being formed by the immense trail of data created by your online activities. Read those lengthy permissions each social media company asks you to sign. They own your information. Every time you order from Amazon, reserve an Airbnb, or research quantum physics, you leave digital traces. China, for example, is ranking its citizens on economic, behavioral, and social criteria. Each person is being given a number based upon their transaction histories, internet search reports, social contacts, and behavioral records, including reprimands of any sort. The Chinese people will be judged by the online company they keep. Our dependence on digital information sharing is being co-opted by data gathering institutions to make each of us a member of their digital world. For them, our digital doubles are becoming us. You don't have to accept their definition of your reality. The opposite of digital is analog. Digital is discrete, separate. Analog is smooth, continuous. Digital relies on square waves. Analog relies on sine waves. We have, up until now, been inhabiting an analog world of trees and clouds and smiles and touch and interpersonal energy, all requiring interpretation to find their meaning. We are now in a battle for how we define reality. Is it going to be analog or digital? Are you a number or a wide-ranging set of feelings? Coincidence interpretation requires analog thinking. How similar are the two incidents of a coincidence? What makes the similarity, and what does it mean? Defining similarity is still difficult for computer algorithms with their black and white language. Coincidence meaning relies on our analog ability, our intuition, our feelings. By paying attention to coincidences, we can divert ourselves from becoming digital selves to remain and expand our analog selves. Our guest today is Dr. Frank Pesciuti, who is a licensed clinical psychologist and certified hypnotherapist, and who is also a colleague of mine and a very good friend. He received his PhD from Michigan State University and maintains a part-time private practice in Charlottesville, Virginia. Over his 40 years of of conducting psychotherapy, Dr. Prasciuti developed a subspecialty of clinically working with clientele who have undergone exceptional experiences like near-death experiences, psychic phenomena, or paranormal anomalies. These clinical experiences led to his new book, Chrysalis Crisis, How Life's Ordeals Can Lead to Personal and Spiritual Transformation. The book just came out, we're talking about it, and Frank, welcome to the show.
5: Uh, thank you, Dr. Biteman. I appreciate being on, and uh, I thought that was a very articulate and sobering um, introduction to the world of analog uh, kind of life uh, versus the digital. That's a little scary, isn't it?
4: It is, it is, it is. Uh, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you liked it. Uh, your book um, is titled Chrysalis Crisis. Uh, how did you choose this title?
5: Well, you know, I, I um, actually I came across a little story which I use in my preface about a little girl who uh, is a, w- watching the process of a caterpillar uh, morph into a butterfly, and she um, notices at one stage of that process the butterfly is trying to free itself th- from the cocoon and it's struggling to get free, and so she as was thinking that maybe it needs some help. And she touches it, of course, uh, to try to help it anyway. And, of course, after touching it, the butterfly falls to the ground and dies. She's devastated. And as the story goes, she goes inside and tells her mom about this incident. And the mom says, oh, dear, you know, the butterfly needed to struggle because not only did it free itself, does it free itself from the cocoon, but it strengthens its wings for flight. And I thought that's a lovely metaphor for what we do when we're trying to emancipate from a crisis in our life. We, uh, we go through the changes or have our version of a meltdown, you might say. And as we move through the process, there's a pivoting point where maybe we have the opportunity to reflect back on what that whole crisis uh, entailed. And oftentimes, with, a little, with some struggle, we, uh, we may find that it actually uh, forced us to have to bear down uh, and, and develop certain key areas of our development as humans and so the struggle itself leads to our strengthening our flight through life. So I thought it was nice uh to use as a as a metaphor for the 10 key areas I focus on in the book where crises can lead to struggles in any one or a number of those areas.
4: I I'm struck by the metaphor uh of the the butter the the butterfly needs to struggle and to strengthen its wings so it can fly that's such a nice that's a, such a nice image yes in, i love that too in in your your uh, your upbringing um has tuned you into things that uh most people don't uh get tuned into and one of the one one thing that it led to uh, as you just describe in your book is uh, the dream before your sister's wedding um, and how that may have been influenced by your upbringing, could you tell us about that dream and how do you think sure. that happened with your mother and your and your sister?
5: Yeah. well, I guess I'd step back a little further in time and say that I grew up in a family which where two things were i would say um, a little more you know uh, a little different than many people. One is I was born to a mom who had m s and was in a wheelchair ten years before, and I think her search to try to understand you know, life and body-mind relationships, and also at first thinking she had Lou Gehrig's disease, also did a lot of research about death and survival, and that led her, along with her a couple of brothers and other relatives, to join an organization called the Rosicrucians, and that is a non-sectarian organization, mystical organization, where a lot of information is provided about um, psychic capacities, inherent potentials in humans, and just an overall notion of evolution over lifetimes. Uh, and the idea of reincarnation, so that kind of was always there in my family, as well as an openness to psychic experience, which just goes back to even my mother's father, who was out of the eighteenth uh, uh, century, left Italy and was uh, attuned to that whole eighteenth century movement uh, that that gave rise to william james and 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 Frederick Myers and their ideas of psychic phenomena and developing the whole that whole investigative area of study. So, for me, I was open to these phenomena, and lo and behold, when I was about 17, um, my sister, you know, only sibling, um, had a wedding, uh, and my parents, it was a big thing in our family. We were, I'm sure my parents worked really hard to come up with the money for this event, and it was a significant event, and my father had sort of said to me, you know, make sure when your sister, when everybody's coming to the church, that you walk grandma, his mother, down the aisle. And uh, my grandmother was like 4'9", and very petite, and so she needed some literal looking over, I guess, in my father's eyes. But anyway, I had a dream the night before that I am walking up the side aisle of the church, looking to the center, and I'm walking to the back of the church, and I notice that my grandmother's already being escorted down the aisle, and I feel this moment of like anxiety, like, oh my God, my father's only wish uh, for me to do that, and I didn't, I didn't fulfill it. And then the dream continues. I walk into the back of the church, and I see my sister under what looks like a spotlight in her wedding dress, just looking beautiful as if she were on stage. And the dream ended, but it was very impressionable. I told my mother about it, and she said, oh, that, you know that, that, that's interesting, because we grew up also sharing our dreams with my mother, who was very interested in, in dream interpretation. So as, as it turns out, on the day of the wedding, my brother-in-law's best man, and I, uh, he was staying at a hotel in town, uh, We got our tuxes mixed up. Somebody delivered the wrong tux. And so before the wedding, as we're getting dressed, I'm realizing this tux, tux is too long for me. It's not mine. I called him up and I said, okay, look, what do you want to do? You have my tux, I have yours. He said, let's meet in the church up in the front, and uh, we'll just go where the, you know, the priests, I forget what they call that area, where the priests and the choir boys and the altar boys get changed, and we'll just change, and then and, and we'll be fine. So he, not from town, chose up a little bit late, and lo and behold, we change, you know, we both put on our suits, and because he was late and because we had to do that whole pre-wedding exchange of clothing, I literally walk up the side aisle, and just as I imagined in my dream, there was my grandmother walking down the center of the aisle, and I'm thinking, wow, this really happened and uh, I walk up to the back of the church, and there's my sister standing in front of a window where just at that time the sun was coming through the window and and she was in that um, sun glow so I told my mother about it the next day, and she had known that I had had that dream and she just she said, yeah, well, that was a precognitive dream, and those happen and the more you pay attention to your inner life, the more likely you're going to register those subtle impressions, but not to get carried away with yourself so that was my first experience with a, a phenomena that many people would question as to whether it's valid or not. So it it, it drove the drove it home to me that these things really do happen.
4: Well, that's a, that's a beautiful illustration of how upbringing can influence the way people think about things. And there's your mother encouraging encouraging you to to know this is a reality, and not uh, trying to encourage you to get too caught up in them, which uh, now results in a book that's. Uh, quite useful and uh, we'll go into it more in, in our next segment. Uh, you're listening to Connecting with Coincidence with your host, Dr. Bernie Biteman MD, on the x Broadcast Network. Our host is uh, Dr. Frank Pesciutti and he is the author of the book Chrysalis Crisis.
6: I love else I've ever
0: Now that you mention it, I remember now last night I was awakened from a deep sleep. My great grandmother was standing there. She said she'd come from the hereafter to tell me about simultv.com. She even spelled it out for me S I M U L T V dot com, Sonny Boy. S I M U L T V dot com. S I M U L T V
3: com, Sonny Boy.
0: Wow. Yeah.
3: Guys, you'll never guess
0: what my psychic guru just told me. SIMULTV.com
3: Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course.
0: We all know about SIMULTV.com SIMULTV.com
1: Path Home Shamanic Art School proudly presents The Gathering of Shaman 2019 Fall Retreat Manifestation Salon. Join me, Certified Shamanic Instructor Guelda Weyaka, in the magnificent Colorado Mountains this November 2nd and 3rd for a life-changing event. Participate in unique teachings and ceremonies that'll put the power and magic of shamanic manifestation into your hands. Sit in circle with like-minded individuals sharing group energy and the power it generates. Classes will be held in a facility next to the beautiful, majestic Arkansas River, further empowering the experience. Space is limited, so reserve your spot today. For more information, visit findyourpathhome.com or email touch in at findyourpathhome.com.
4: Welcome back to CC with BB. Our guest today is Frank Prasciuti, author of Chrysalis Crisis. And Frank covers a lot in his book, but one of the the phrases or quotes that he uses that that struck me was uh, a quote that said that religion is someone else's experience. Spirituality is your own experience. Frank, I think that's a, you got that from Deepak Chopra. I think that's a, that's a great, very good idea. That I'd ask you to uh, tell us more about.
5: Well, you know, I think um, when I when I understand spirituality, I think of it as a, an, a direct experience of spirit, the dimension, the subtle dimension that we're all, you know, that is that it comprises a part of who we are. Uh, it's all around us and within us, and um, and so many different religions. Uh, have tried to define that. But what happens, I think, um, is that many of the religions, you know, because they're products of humans, even if they're uh, inspired humans, um, they can, you know, they can get us to having to think along a certain line. Uh, but, you know, when you start having a direct experience with spirit, and by that I mean, like, for instance, somebody who has a near-death experience, they, experience, they have a personal experience where their awareness is outside their body and they start recognizing that hey i have this dimension of me and i like to refer to it as spirit which is not solely um dependent on the brain or the physical body uh and that other other experiences may also be had where people will sometimes after the death of a close uh, a significant other they'll behold their spirit uh and 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 so there's that sense of spirituality can be more than just, you know, what we've been told by various religions. And I think we need to disentangle those because oftentimes people will say, you know, I don't, I don't believe, I don't want to be getting into religion. I want to be able to just say, go my own way. Uh, Well, you don't have to intermingle those. You could say, I still believe in the fact that I have, I am spirit also besides physicality at this point in time. And, um, and I could have direct experiences of spirit, whether or not I define, god or whether or not i i belong to a particular community of religious belief
4: very good how did you get into being uh, clinically uh, fo- focused on people who have uh, near-death experiences and and other uh other extraordinary experiences
5: well you know um because of that background that i mentioned earlier i was always kind of curious about whether or not even though I had my own experience uh, with the wedding experience, I was always curious as to whether I had been indoctrinated by my family in a way to believe these things were true, uh, and some of the concepts that were you know surround them like reincarnation or out of body experiences. Um, and so what happened? I found myself pivoting after college, whether or not I wanted to f- pursue a field in um, in business administration, which I studied in college. And when I really found myself reading. I was reading mystical areas, areas of you know philosophy, and particularly fascinated by the paranormal experiences people uh, have had. And at one point, I just made a very definite decision. I thought, you know, this is my passion. This is where I'm interested in. And, and then I, I thought very rationally, which, which field would most likely uh, enable me to uh, learn more about these experiences, particularly differentiating maybe – the ones that were valid from ones that were maybe byproducts of uh, pathological uh, experiences like you know schizophrenia maybe people were hallucinating maybe people were delusional fraudulent whatever but there seemed to be enough evidence and enough you know credible people writing about these phenomena that I wanted to be able to dif- differentiate that and so in my second year of my doctoral program uh, a fellow comes into the uh, university counseling center uh, and announcing that he was afraid he was the angel of death. Uh, and so my, one of my colleagues, we had this intake process where all the staff people would come together and we, somebody would do an intake, whether they could pick the person up or not. They had to present him to the uh, group of therapists uh, to see if anybody else would pick him up. And, I, and he also, the, the intake person said, this fellow also had a near-death experience. And this is 1978, 79. Uh, the book Life After Life had just come out. Uh, Raymond Moody's book and I was familiar with that both about that phenomena the near-death experience as well as what I had read and,
4: and like the t- books, Raymond Moody's books about reincarnation to be clear
5: it, yeah in life after life where he was very specifically talking about the near-death experience and um, and also I had read other books you know or other materials about astral projection and the idea that the spirit or your awareness can be outside your body out of body experiences so Long story short, that fella presented a real challenge for me because here I was in a conventional clinical psychology Ph.D. program, and I was blessed to have two supervisors—one an individual supervisor and a group supervisor—who were very open to my picking this case up and helping me differentiate, you know, what was valid from what might have, you know, might have thought to be a byproduct of some kind of pathology. And so that was the first time I had someone who had an extraordinary experience. Both an NDE, but also uh, some some uh, subsequent uh, precognitions uh, in dreams uh, that were substantiated and um, and validated by other people.
4: Yeah, and and that it's almost like it looks back. We can look back and see a nice line of experiences that got you to being able to and wanting to write this book. And one of the experiences that you had was uh, running into Stanislav Graf's book. Uh, talking about spiritual emergency, could you tell us how he defined that and how you how that mean what it means to you?
5: Well, what was nice about uh, Groff's book was he had a way of looking at many of these extraordinary experiences: people who have near-death experiences, people who maybe had an out-of-body out out experience, uh, people who have paranormal experiences, people who have what are called past-life. Uh, um, memories coming back or breaking through in various states, whether they're meditating or dreaming, um, and so he, he labeled those spiritual emergencies, which was nice because they can be treated differently than, the, than if somebody has other, rather than say these are, again, p- products of, you know, either sort of a brain that's not functioning well or some symptom of some other form of pathology, uh, he said they needed to be treated, treated differently, and so as a clinical psychologist, I started developing a subspecialty of working with people who had these kinds of phenomena. And oftentimes they come in themselves and they're like, other than the fact that they know that I'm open to this without, you know, prejudging them as, you know, crazy. They come in and often themselves say I'm wondering whether I'm losing my mind or whether this experience was real. Cause many times uh, people are not familiar with paranormal phenomena and they worry that they are losing their mind. So I do a, a very traditional and conventional assessment to make sure that they aren't, you know, uh, going to some form of psychosis, uh, but when they're not, they're really hungry for information. They want to know how is it that their mind can work this way? How is it they could have awareness of and, and, uh, something that doesn't happen in the typical way we understand time and space? Or how could they be outside their body and looking back at their body in a near-death experience? What is it that, where does awareness reside? Where does memory reside? So these are fascinating uh, questions, and I try to uh, build an explanatory model in the book, which moves from more conventional kinds of areas of growth as an outgrowth, or maybe uh, just in terms of uh, focusing it on crisis, because usually uh, it it amplifies the area that maybe uh, requires development. But I also bridge it over into the spiritual emergencies, because I see them all on a continuum of consciousness.
4: The phrase spiritual emergency has a double meaning to me, uh, besides that the, it like going to the emergency room, there's a problem, but it's also the emergence of the spiritual.
5: I agree. That's an excellent, uh, That's an excellent interpretation. I think that was something that Groff had mentioned. There's an emergence of a potential that we have within us um, and that oftentimes when it does come into awareness, because it's so foreign, can be frightening. But if one works with it, it may very well be uh, an area that it's not a breakdown; it's a breakthrough, if you will.
4: Yeah, it's a breakthrough. It em- it emerges from uh, that experience. Yes. Uh, the how do you differentiate between uh, what might be called psychotic and uh, what uh, the kinds of descri- kind of experiences you're describing?
5: Well, I think that sometimes when people have these spiritual emergencies, they can present a psych, like as a transient t- a psychosis, and they do need help stabilizing. And sometimes even an antipsychotic drug for a brief period may help them ground. But there's other ways of grounding. But it's so upsetting that they can feel like they're losing their mind, and and may very well look to a clinician like they are going through a brief psychotic episode. But it's not a. It's not a. Uh, it's not a. Uh, Persistent state. It's it's something that's transitory. Like, you know, there's uh, situations where people maybe go to intense retreats and meditate all the time, or somebody, somebody um, is taking a drug like LSD, and and they uh, they activate maybe some of these dormant potentials, uh, which can make them even make them seem crazy. Even in the literature about shamans. There's often uh, there's often it's often found that in their early years and maybe even teenage years shamans can look like they're going through a schizophrenic episode. But actually what's happening for them is they are awakening to this deeper potential that resides in our unconscious. Uh, And when it comes to the surface, it can cause a, a great deal of struggle and and confusion uh, that the outside people may look like they're losing their mind, but actually, once they stabilize and learn how to manage that flow, it actually can be quite a benefit. Um, that that
4: that's what that's what you're offering people the ability to be able to do that.
6: Staffordshire, June 2001, a ten year old who really needs a friend. Ten days later in Wiltshire, her balloon is found. 140.
2: Whether you're a skeptic or a believer,
4: Welcome back to CC with BB. I'm your host, Dr. Bernie Bightman, MD. And our guest today is Dr. Frank Busciutti, a psychologist who helps people deal with spiritual emergencies. He describes what he does in his book, Chrysalis Crisis. And we're talking about some of the people and ideas behind what he does Frank, one of your um, one of the people in your book um, was recently married, and then something happened on the beach with her and her husband. Could you tell us about that and how she came to you and how you helped her?
5: Sure. Um, well, this young woman, um, she actually was um, referred to me by the University of Virginia's Division of Perceptual Studies, that researches. Uh, after-death reincarnation and uh, mediumship and and a variety of things so uh, uh, and become sometimes uh, people who have experiences they don't understand that are of a paranormal uh, exceptional uh, kind of uh, way will reach out to them and and that has been a very beneficial thing for me because they'll often refer them to me in the community because what these people are looking for really is a therapist or somebody to help them understand their experiences whereas this program uh... researches more than does therapy with people so in either case she came to me and her experience was actually um, it was uh, before she got married she was uh... out in a island with uh... with the love of her life and they had this wonderful evening and they decided when they got back to the states they were going to get married and finally just go ahead and do it it was a beautiful evening and and they um, the next morning, um, the uh, the fellow wakes up and says, I'm going to go out to the beach, and um, do you want to go for a swim? Do you want to come? And she says, well, you know what? I think I'm going to want to sleep. I'll sleep in a little bit. Um, and so about an hour after he goes out, she goes out. She sees his chair on the beach uh, and his stuff underneath him. She looks up and down the beach, at least initially, visually, and doesn't see him. And then she walks down the beach a little further, and there he is Face down in the water, just a little bit offshore, and he apparently had died. So this was a devastating experience for her. They had just decided to get married. Uh, now, what happened was, once she, you know, got over the initial trauma, that she started having experiences where she was um, feeling his presence, but more than even feeling him. These anomalous experiences started happening. She'd be watching a show where she, uh, she, she, uh, the, the show itself was uh, something that was on TV. And the TV channel changer was like, you know, a good five or six feet away. And all of a sudden, the TV station would change to another station that she felt was very relevant to both. Both the phenomena of the TV changing itself was one. But the other thing is it goes to a station that she knows that he liked to see. She also said she beheld his presence uh, and and was initially frightened. um, uh, Beheld
4: his presence.
5: Well, in other words, she saw what might be a spirit or ghostly uh, presence of him, you know, in a a sort of subtle form in the room and and had this sense of like a rippling, sort of not quite tangible uh, uh, element of his appearance. And that scared her at first, but she said it was very much, you know, real and she was very much awake at the time. And then she also started having a number of coincidences occurring, which had relevance to him. And now let me tell you, when she came to see me first, she was one of these people who thought she was losing her mind, which she wasn't. She was not only very solid, but she was in a field of of a profession that was very grounded, very very hard science kind of field, and and had even as a personality a very uh, somewhat previously skeptical attitude about these kinds of phenomena. But what was fascinating, um, she wasn't super skeptical. She had had two previous near-death experiences in her life. That she'd never shared with anybody, and the research on NDEs are that people who have NDEs, oftentimes afterwards, they gain the ability to seem, seemingly, have more psychic phenomena happen, like precognitions. It's almost as if the uh, uh, the loosening of the tether of their awareness or spirit to their bodies in an NDE seems to uh, uh, enable them to be able to register. So the subtle phenomena of, like, precognitions or clairvoyance or clairaudience. So she was a good example of that. And, you know, we worked together. And, um, I, you know, at first, of course, I don't, I, you know, she was grieving. So she was an interesting case. And when she came to see me, I realized, you know, first order of business is uh, take a very conventional approach, which is to help her deal with the grieving. And then after that, she wanted to pivot into uh, trying to understand more about these kinds of phenomena.
4: I've some people on this radio show um, and know a couple who have had manic episodes. And these manic episodes are not um, like short-term things that uh, happen and then they go away in what you're describing and the people who come to see you. But instead, they can go on for days and then recur. And so what they have told me is that they have the typical manic episode of like uh, rapid speech, um, rapid thoughts, uh, a lot of uh, hyperactivity, uh, very little need for sleep. And they also have um, parapsychological phenomena. Have you seen people like that? And then how do you handle them?
5: Well, you know, that's a very interesting clinical question because there's an element of manic psychosis. So you'd have to disentangle what is valid from you know what is a product of the state of their mind at the time but i also i've often wondered whether intensification of emotion sometimes can bring about uh... what we would call psychic phenomena you know the old the classic case of the woman whose child is caught under a car or something and then woman finds a superhuman strength to lift something that she would not normally be able to lift or people who are faced with real extreme experiences like even people by the way who are imagining they're going to die like for instance somebody their car is racing towards a tree they'll have an out of body experience uh, before they hit the tree before they even have you know a, experience any kind of clinical near death uh, phenomena so you know i do think that maybe the manic state can can uh, amp up our capacities in other areas like emotion uh, and uh, and and might actually precipitate a, a psychic experience like that, but again, it's the challenge is disentangling, you know, what is what is a, a what is something that's going on that is that is a, a symptom of pathology, and uh, what is a, a valid psychic experience. And that whole area of clinical parapsychology tries to address those differences.
4: And, it, and I'm talking not about clinical psychology, really. I'm talking about clinical psychiatry. Because uh, yeah. the, the manic people don't come to people like you. Um, they go to emergency rooms and they get put in inpatient units. And what, what you're talking about, I think, needs to be applied uh, to psychiatry, psychiatric treatment an attempt like uh, Stanislav Graf, who was a psychiatrist or is a psychiatrist, was able to do. And making that transition within psychiatry um, seems to be uh, very difficult because it's embedded more in, in medicine and the more traditional ways of thinking. And there's some craziness in the people too. There is something yeah. off yeah. of them. So, yeah, I t- you know, Go ahead.
5: I was going to say, well, interestingly, as we both know, you as a psychiatrist, there's a bias towards trying to understand uh, phenomena through a physicalist basis or through understanding medicine, which goes way beyond the kind of training I've had as a clinical psychologist. But actually, clinical psychology is even more resistant to opening to the possible or the validity of some of these psychic experiences because there's almost, there's always a diagnosis that can explain it away. If somebody has a Past life experience or is really like, um, you know, uh, experiencing like uh, as somebody who's a, uh, a medium, they might start saying, well, they're multiple personality disorder. Or if somebody is experiencing, um, you know, uh, a psychic phenomenon, they might say they're delusional. So there's a handle that you can throw at these people if you want to pathologize it. But the, the challenge is to say at least start with an open mind that these psychic phenomena are valid for some people and that the research which has been done over the years very tight research has proven that they're really that you know ESP if you will psychic phenomena does exist we don't know how it works yet but the fact that it does does actually happen um, I think at least would uh, incline or you would want to encourage people to say keep an open mind not everybody might be experiencing um, uh, uh, some form of pathology but then there's also the case where both could be happening right I mean yeah uh, and then, and then it's even more challenging if you got somebody who's you know uh experiencing some sort of transitory uh psychosis or or dips down into those levels of the unconscious where they're actually registering psychic phenomena but also they get lost in there like might be the case of a schizophrenic like what's real and what's not real
4: and we're coming to the near the end of this segment and uh the 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 problem is not data about whether, say, telepathy exists or even psychokinesis. It's the the resistance uh, in the general mind of medicine and science, and science as well, uh, and psychology as well, to want to ground uh, what they see and hear from patients in uh, a materialistic, brain-based ways of thinking, and some of what you're writing about and what I think your attempt is and what the Division of Perceptual Studies is, is to try to find ways to be able to change the mindsets of people who are resistant to these ideas. And I'm not sure um, how successful we are being, but I think we keep knocking away at it. Uh, You're coming to the end of this segment. You're listening to Connecting with Coincidence. I'm your host, Dr. Bernie Beitman, MD, on the Exome Broadcast Network. Our guest is Frank Pasciutti, author of Chrysalis Crisis.
6: On the, the return to and on a balloon
4: Welcome back to CC. Yes, I'm your host, Dr. Bernie Byman, MD, and we are talking with Frank Pesciuti author of Chrysalis Crisis. And Frank, um, and one of the key questions uh, I, I have and other people will have about um, what you're writing is about what is consciousness. Uh, it, it's such a tough subject, but I think we need to pay attention to that question here.
5: Yeah, well that's the that is the million dollar question because I think we're all like the, uh, the the saying of a lot of blind people uh, poking at the elephant and trying to understand the whole mass of the concept of consciousness um but from the very field that we uh, are most familiar with. For me, I tend to think of consciousness as a way of understanding the foundation of everything. And I, I it's fair to say that in a in a more Secular world that maybe consciousness that we're all talking about. Uh, I, I talk. About, I, I sort of share the notion of a pantheistic notion of consciousness as that which underlies everything. What Freud, what Jung, and Pauli, Wolfgang Pauli, the noble physicist, and Carl Jung, uh, the psychiatrist, uh, referred to as the Unus Mundus, the one ground that gives rise to everything. And I guess the shift that's going on right now is that people will, well, one thing is people will confuse conscious with consciousness. And it's unfortunate that, that they're both very similar and use the, the same beginning of the word there. But, but, I, but my idea of consciousness and how I use it as, as the foundation that gives rise to both awareness, gives rise to mentality, gives rise to physicality, and that in my book, the 10 areas and the 10 keys that I focus on, I, I see as the range of consciousness accessible to humans. Uh, Which goes everywhere uh, includes everything from our physical, the physical dimension that we're in and 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 are a part of, all the way through more subtle dimensions of spirit, spirit awareness or intuition, Uh, and all along the way, uh, the ability to cognate, have intellectual understanding, emotions, and, and many different areas. But consciousness, in a more religious concept, might be equivalent to God. What people would say is God. Uh, that which is uh, all around us within us and gives rise to everything, so that is I think the word consciousness goes down easier for uh, the scientific minded folks who are you know quantum physicists who want to talk about how consciousness needs to be there to uh, to bring a uh, a wave or a probability wave into a particle. so I think that I think the world is saying you know if we can find a way to understand the greater uh, existence of all things in, uh, in a very expanded way—a uh, cosmic consciousness that that can embrace everything. That that's one of the ways people are using the word consciousness, and one of the ways that I tend to use it in the book.
4: And one of the people that you base some of your thinking upon uh, on is Tyler Chardin who talked about teleological drive. I think. Tele- teleological drive is a very, very important idea to keep in mind. We tend to think of of um, of cause as like uh, from the past. I mean, two things come together, and that's what makes it happen. But teleology is something else. Would you tell us what you mean by that?
5: Well, my understanding of it, and I'm I have a bias as a de- I have a bias towards developmental psychology, which is I I believe, and and one of the first impressions I had in the field, which really sold me on becoming a clinical psychologist was, was uh, uh, the idea of we're always, or Carl Rogers talked about we're always in the act of becoming, and that's very similar to teleology where we're, we're always in, uh, evolving. And so when I think of these 10 keys that I identify, I think of us as learning to gain increased mastery and over, and I will say that I use a concept, or I hold tenable, the idea of reincarnation that this development can occur over lifetimes, and that we bring with us a continued, uh, a progression of of, uh, of experiences where we can learn and gain greater mastery of of these ten keys, but that we're always moving towards the more subtle awareness and the purer state of, of of spirit, and that over time we become conscious of the range of consciousness that is available to us, but maybe not realized yet. So there's where, you know, I like the idea of, of, uh, of development over time. It's kind of optimistic that we're always, even if it looks like we're going backwards sometimes, you know, like in crisis, you might say, wow, this looks like a step back. But if you learn something from the crisis or even difficult times politically or socially or the upheavals over history, the idea is that you know are we expanding awareness are we continuing to evolve even if it seems really slow or even if there's always going to be people all along that continuum you know you can't say that is the uh, is the mean developmental level that we are at at this time of our evolution of humanity is it greater than it was you know two thousand four thousand years ago in terms of a mass of people so it, it speaks to everything leads to growth or all things are leading to good
4: And I think that's the main message of your book. Is that, am I getting that correctly?
5: Yeah. And, and, you know, if you break down each crisis and it doesn't have to be crisis that leads you to seek growth in these 10 key areas, I use crisis because it amplifies. uh, One is when people come to therapy, as you know, if they're in crisis, uh, they tend to make change greater than if they're just curious about therapy. Uh, And, and when you, when I use these case examples and, uh, different you know, ways in which I use my own experience or the experiences of others it's usually uh, it's done in the uh, context of crisis because crisis amplifies them but ultimately there's the, there 's an optimistic you know theme to the book which is even the crisis that you 're in when you look back at it once you navigate through the initial you know difficult period of of uh, adjustment. You may see that it forces you, it forced you to have to develop certain of these key areas to be able to navigate through it and and to integrate the experience. This, you know, this, so-
4: it's important to have this optimism. and uh, there's been that optimism uh, generally speaking, about synchronicity, uh, that it's kind of all good, which is a phrase that's out there. but a lot of coincidences are not all good. They have, um, multiple effects, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. What about with, uh, spiritual emergencies? Are, are there any downsides that you experience with people?
5: Well, you know, that's a very good experience. That's a very good point because, um, I'm trying to think of a book that I, I cite, uh, uh, where there's a, there well, somebody wrote a book about, um. Uh, negative near-death experiences, for example, which would be considered a spiritual emergency, that sometimes when people are are swamped by the openness and awareness uh, that can accompany a near-death experience, it's not always necessarily positive. They may be, you know, it may be, you know, there is a shadow side to our personalities. There is a darker side on, uh, that's potential to humanity also. So sometimes it may very well be a byproduct of something very dark, that breaks through awareness, but yet again, I, I guess I'm an optimist to think that even if it's deep and dark, and there's a purgation going on, if you will, that there's still a chance that you know that if you're swamped by a negative experience and it reflects your lower self or your shadow self, bringing light to it or examining it may may diffuse it or may uh, may release it, and behind that, I, I guess I believe it is the higher self. So, even in the dark experiences. Uh, and maybe initially they their experience as negative what lies behind that and underneath it i think may be the teleological drive for growth
4: it's it's a it's optimistic underneath it all there's something positive happening and i think it's an important way of thinking about the world instead of giving up and i i'm wondering how your book is being received it's just kind it just came out a little while ago and how people can get a hold
5: of it. Well, sure. Well, you know, uh, part of the book being received is getting the word out that it exists. Although the people that I have spoken to in other interviews, they seem to be responding positively to it. It, it. What's interesting is in the professional community, I think the first part of the book, uh, the first, I have four sections. The first two are more conventional. Uh, and so therapists in general may say, okay, this is a nice articulation of, you know, the more familiar ways in which people grow through the more foundational and personal areas. Uh, and they yet may, oh, may find the second half of the book where I start getting into spiritual emergencies and or provide a model for understanding uh, uh, consciousness. Um, so I, I see different things. Others who have not given much thought to this will find the whole book. Maybe be interesting because there's so much to be learned about just the conventional ways in which we grow and the kinds of typical problems people bring into therapy and it may at first glance the second half of the book may really open them to concepts they've never given much thought to at all um so you know i, I it's more about i i, I people have seemed to be responding pretty positively to it um I think there's something in there um for everyone um it's certainly a very broad the ten uh, the ten key areas i I identify are pretty much very broad and I try to get my arms around a lot so that it's, I I think people enjoy the, uh, the layman friendly, uh, way I write it because I, I, I I write it the way I would speak to somebody in my office. I don't want to sound like some off in the clouds intellectual. I want to always make sure that I, I articulate what I'm saying in a way that's comprehensible to everybody.
4: I think that's true. I think you've written that way and, and you've included a lot of your own personal experiences in which I think helps the reader identify with you and therefore identify with some of the experiences. Well, uh, we'll come to the end of this segment. Please tell people how they can get a hold of your book, Chrysalis Crisis.
5: Sure. Um, Well, one is you can go on Amazon. It's there. If you just, uh, if you go to Google and just put in Chrysalis Crisis, you're going to get my name. Uh, You could also go to my website, which is frankpasciutti.com. But people might have to make sure you spell that last name right. P-A-S-T-I-U-T-I. And and you'll get all the information you need to know about me and the book.
3: and writers think and talk about, well, I can let you know. I am one. Hey, I'm Hollis Joe McCullum, and I have a podcast called I Do What I Want, and it is all about my writing journey as well as the writing journey with other authors and book stuff in general. Check me out on Spotify and on my channel on YouTube. Thanks so much!